tend to the bendy haircut, you endless Brendas. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. I said the word podcast there. With the inflected enthusiasm of a radio bastard. It's been hot in Limerick City. Unwelcome and all-encompassing humidity has had many a swampy Michael fanning themselves like a cormorant in a sludgy dell. It was 94% humidity on Saturday evening. The ether making a continental quilt out of itself. Hot japes in the air. No wind. Flaccid wet hairstyles. Sweaty-bellied Labradors pining for ice pops. Heat-rashed Antoinettes. Walking into Jisk. Just for the air conditioning. Horrible weather. Horrible weather. Adult men. Cruising in their cars. Men of about 39 years of age. Cruising in their Volkswagen saloons. Cruising to the point that it makes the roads dangerous. Slowing down whenever they see groups of girls. As a vestigial response from their teenage years. Cruising is a strange way of driving. It's when it's when you try to wear your car like a jacket. Leaning back with the elbow out. Listening to Gigi D'Agostino when the sun is high. The exclusive practice of middle-aged men. Because young lads in their 20s don't have cars anymore. They don't have cars. So the only people who cruise in cars are men who are tipping 40. Who remember what it was like when they were 19 and they had cars. But they don't have Nissan Skylines or Honda Civics anymore. They have long dusty black Volkswagens with a child seat in the back. And they slow down. They slow down when they see girls half their age. As if those girls are impressed by a sweaty 40 year old man who's trying to wear his car like a jacket. They have no context for that mating ritual. There was a recession 10 years ago. I nearly crashed into the back of a man last week. I was on my bicycle and he slowed down with his elbow out to get the attention of a group of 20 year old girls. And he wasn't like leering at them. He wasn't sticking his head out the window. It was just muscle memory. It was pure muscle memory. And I felt like saying to him, it's over, it's over, it's done. You're not young anymore, you're not cool. You look like a side of bacon in a delivery van. A slice of ham with the pockmark of an eyebrow ring. Go home and spend time with your children. Because you know what the 19 year old lads are doing now? In the boiling hot weather. They're wearing full woolen black balaclavas on electric bicycles going the wrong way against traffic. That's what the 19 year olds are doing now. It's like a cross between a Kira and a Harley. Groups of young lads. Groups of young lads in Limerick City on the hottest day of the year looking like eco-friendly terrorists. Fucking full black balaclavas. Full black balaclavas. And it's 31 degrees outside on their electric bikes. A full group of them and I saw one lad at the back and he didn't have an electric bike but what, what he had was he had a little electric scooter. He had an electric scooter. The small little ones that you stand on that go pure fast. But he wanted to look like the rest of the lads. Because they had proper bikes that were they were a bit like motorbikes but they're electric. He wanted to look like them. So he got his electric scooter. And instead of a seat, he had gotten one of those really small, those small plastic recycling bins that you put organic waste into that he'd stolen out of his mother's kitchen. And he'd sellotaped that to his scooter and sat on it as a type of crude seat and went through Limerick City the wrong way. And when I almost crashed, 
in my in my pedal bicycle into the back of that 40 year old man I felt like saying to him that's what you need to do buddy if you're adamant that on a hot day you want to turn the heads of 20 year old women then get up onto a scooter and sit on a recycling bin on the scooter and go the wrong way in traffic because that's that's 2023's version of a Honda Civic that's what they have now that's what a midlife crisis should look like it used to be a man gets to 40 and he buys a Toyota Celica or a Hyundai Coupe a hairdresser's Porsche if you're going to do a midlife crisis properly now you need to wear a balaclava and ride around on an organic waste bin drinking a bottle of Prime and staring at other motorists as if they're the ones going the wrong way down the road but as I almost crashed into the back of that that man who was slowing down as I almost crashed into the back of him and went head first into his boat my anger subsided when I was reminded by a story my ma told me about my dearly departed father when in I think it was around 1978 before I was born it was an incredibly hot day in Limerick City and my dad was stuck in a traffic jam on Sarsfield Bridge in a shitty Ford Cortina and he had five children in the car and my ma and my dad in a traffic jam crashed into the car in front of him because he saw a woman in a miniskirt for the first time and my ma battered him on the side of the road I'm left with a lot of unresolved anxiety about driving because of stories that my brothers would tell me about what driving was like in the 1970s we hadn't received any money from Europe yet we had roads that were designed exclusively for donkeys and carts a car journey from one part of Ireland to another part of Ireland would take an entire day cars would overheat cars would break down in reclusive country roads you didn't have a mobile phone you couldn't ring anyone to tow your car you had to wander the countryside in search of a farmhouse and hope that the farmer had a tractor that would pull your car to the nearest town farmhouses didn't have phones if your car broke down in Ireland in the countryside in the 1970s it was a legitimate survival experience there were less cars on the road people mightn't pass you by you were absolutely fucked you were fucked and the fear of being fucked the fear of your car breaking down somewhere in the countryside meant that car journeys themselves were then inherently stressful very stressful situations well into the 1990s if my dad had to drive the car beyond Limerick City he'd get it serviced first and my dad's mechanic wasn't even a real mechanic it was a fellow with a stutter called Dickie the Whippet spidery limbs and perpetually black fingertips he had a comb over scullet and smelt like petrol and sweat and journeys didn't happen unless Dickie the Whippet said so so the fear of a car journey was so extreme that my dad was anxious then my ma was anxious because my dad was anxious and then my brothers who were little children were fucking terrified terrified of a car journey and because they were terrified everyone's anxiety was high and five of them five kids had to pile into the back of a cartina while my dad and my ma would drive them from Limerick City to West Cork in the 1970s which was a journey that took about six fucking hours they'd be going on to West Cork in the summer to visit my grandfather to stay on his farm for a few weeks and there was one particular journey that scarred me 
and this happened before I was born. It was the stories about the journey that scarred me. They were on their way down to West Cork. Dickie the Whippet had given the A-OK for the car. Tensions were high. Five children in the back seat. Terrified. And it's unbelievably hot. My dad had a rule that no windows could be open in a car, regardless of the heat. There was no air conditioning back then. I don't even think there was blowers in cars. He couldn't open the window because he referred to wind as razor blades. And he believed that a wind from behind in a car when he was driving, if that wind came in, that it would permanently freeze the expression on his face because he'd seen a documentary about Bell's palsy. So they were driving down to West Cork. They'd left Limerick City and now they're in the countryside. And one of my brothers is, it's roasting, it's roasting. I'm feeling sick, I'm feeling sick. And then my dad's like, we're not putting over, we're not putting over. Because if you have to pull over to get sick, then we lose time. And if we lose time, then we're going to approach darkness. Darkness in the countryside. And if we break down in darkness, we're fucked. It's a survival scenario in the wild. So my brother's like, please stop the car. I need to get sick. My dad's like, no. So my brother gets sick down my dad's back. Gets sick down my dad's back while he's driving. It's too late now. They're in the countryside. It's the 1970s. You can't just go and buy new clothes. It's the 1970s in the countryside. So my dad pulls over in a ditch, takes off his trousers, takes off his shirt, rolls around in the grass to clean off the vomit and silently drives for the next six hours down to West Cork in his underpants with a car full of children. They eventually arrive into West Cork to my grandfather's house, which is an isolated farmhouse in a bog. My granddad was deeply traumatised from being in the IRA, from fighting the black and tans. So as soon as the car pulls into the fucking driveway, even though my granddad knows that his son and his family are visiting West Cork, even though my granddad knows the sound of an engine coming up the driveway in the 1970s is so rare that he gets like a PTSD response and goes and hides in the barn because he thinks it's the black and tans. Then my grandma comes out, a woman who was born in the late 1800s, surrounded by chickens, immediately starts saying the holy rosary at my da, because she, think, she thinks he chose to, to drive down to West Cork in his jocks for the laugh. She thinks he did it as a choice. <laughs> like he was a hippie or something, a nudist. And then, and then to make it all worse, they've arrived in West Cork, everyone's gotten there safe, but my dad gets so stressed out at his ma saying the rosary, because he's in his underpants, that he gets angry and he slams down the boot of the car and catches my brother's fingers and he's screaming and crying with a swollen hand. So that's what I grew up with. Those are the stories about cars that I grew up with. And it's probably why I cycle a bicycle. But it's also a story that... Like when my family get together... They'll talk about that story. And they'll talk about it fondly. And it'll be a great source of laughter. And it's difficult for me then... Because I have to try and... Imagine what my dad was like... As a younger man. He was around my age that I am now in the 70s. He would have been in his late 30s. My earliest memories of my dad. 
he probably would have been in his 50s. In my teens, he was in his 60s. I only know him as an older man. My dad died when I was quite young. I was 19 or 20. He died almost 20 years ago. One of the shitty and confusing things about grief is when I try to remember my father and try to remember conversations with my father. It's forever rooted in my experience of being a child or a teenager. My entire memory of my dad, and I'm not just talking about my visual memory, trying to remember what he looked like, what he sounded like, but my emotional memory of my father is rooted in teenage emotions. I don't know what it is to hold an adult conversation with my dad. For me as an emotionally mature adult with a solid sense of self, I don't know what it is to speak to my father as a fallible adult human being. I don't know what it is to say to my dad, how do you feel about that? Or how did you feel about that? And then listen while he explains his emotions. Like that there is a real adult position to have mastery and knowledge of your own emotions so that you can actually ask another person how do you feel and then have the maturity and sense of safety to sit back and listen and empathize like that there is an adult conversation i couldn't have done that when i was 16 i could have attempted it but i didn't have the the, the knowledge of self to do so to to speak to him as an equal adult i don't have any context for that Every memory I have is looking up at him, not looking directly straight at him, literally and emotionally. And there's so many conversations I'd love to have with him. The closest thing I I do have to holding an adult conversation with my dad, even though he's gone, is reading books that he owned, reading the books that he left behind, that he read as an adult, and then using that as a little intrapersonal means of understanding him as an adult. My dad was deeply intelligent, really smart and knowledgeable. He could have been a writer. And near the end of his life, he did actually start writing. He started writing memoirs and putting down thoughts. And seeing him doing that at the end of his life is one of the things that always motivated me towards creativity. Because I do remember being a teenager and seeing him with a typewriter in his 60s And I remember thinking to myself, Jesus, isn't that awful sad that the only time he sat down with a typewriter took him six decades to sit down and do it. And I don't know why, but I have to assume it's why anyone does that. It's usually a fear of failure. A fear of failure will keep you from doing that thing you want to do. And you know from listening to this podcast, my attitude about failure. I can't allow myself to be afraid of failure because if I'm afraid of failure, I won't try So I actively embrace failure. And if I create something and it's not successful and people don't like it, at least I made it, at least it's there. And I'd rather spend time creating something that people don't like or maybe that I don't like myself. I'd rather spend the time doing that than doing nothing because I was scared to try. And seeing my dad writing in his 60s, that was definitely a motivating factor there. That's why I started creating relentlessly at a very young age. But when my dad went to school, in his days of school in Ireland, they were educated in what would be called the classics. Greek works and Latin works. So a lot of the books that my dad left behind are Latin and Greek books. I'd see the books on the shelf when I got to my ma's house that were his. 
and he'd have Cicero, Plato, Marcus Aurelius, Homer, the classical canon that he would have been taught in school, Latin and Greek. And I always remember as a kid, if I didn't know the meaning of a word, if I didn't know the meaning of a word in English, I'd always ask my dad, what does this word mean? And he'd never just tell me what the word meant. He would explain to me the Latin or Greek root of the word and then use that to show me why the word meant what it did. Like when I was about 10, I remember asking him, what does the word democracy mean? I'd have heard the word democracy on the news or in school or something. And I went to him, what the fuck, what does democracy mean? And then he said, well, it comes from the Greek. It's two words. Demos means people. And then kratos means rule. So democracy means the people rule. And when he explained it like that, I now deeply understand the word and what it means and its purpose. So when I call out to my ma's house and I go through my dad's old books, they're either loads of books about the old IRA, Tolstoy, and a shitload of Greek and Latin classics. There was one book recently that I pulled out and I had a crack through it recently and it was blowing my mind. There's a book called Works and Days written by a Greek poet called Hesiod. It was written about 2,500 years ago. It's an epic poem that was written 500 years before Christ. 500 years before the Christian Bible. This is an old book. It's a strange book because it's hard to get my head around what it even is. It's a really long poem written by Hesiod but it's addressed to his brother. His brother's name is Parsis and Works and Days it reminded me more of a podcast than a book because it's kind of instructional and I can't tell who the audience was like 2,500 years ago. I can't tell. Did Hesiod write this literally just for his brother or was it like an open letter for everybody? It's an open letter to his brother intended to be read by everybody in Greek society 2,500 years ago. It's like a poem of forgiveness. It starts off with Hesiod being real pissed off with his brother Parsis. Hesiod and Parsis were both supposed to inherit a farm from their dad. But Parsis had used corrupt judges in Greece to basically fuck Hesiod out of the inheritance. So Hesiod, who's writing this poem, didn't get the farm and Parsis did. So Hesiod writes this poem, which is like, I know you have the farm. You got it through these corrupt fuckers. Fair enough. But I'm going to tell you about the importance of leading a decent moral life, which must rely upon hard work and justice. If you want to be successful, you can't go down this nasty route. Even though you have the farm and you have the material wealth of this farm, because you got it through corruption, you don't have spiritual wealth. And because you don't have spiritual wealth, you're going to fuck up your own farm. So then it turns into like this practical instruction manual about how to run a farm 2,500 years ago. And then in the middle of it, it delves into Greek mythology. And then I look it up separately and I realise that this book, Works and Days, this 2,500 year old piece of writing, is where we now as a civilization 
have the written record of a lot of Greek mythology and in particular the creation myths of Greek mythology. So works and days, it's a bit like the Old Testament of Greek mythology. Now the thing is with Greek mythology, as with any mythology, it comes from the oral tradition. So even though Hesiod is writing this down 2,500 years ago, he's not coming up with these stories off the top of his head. He's simply writing down the oral tradition that could be a couple of more thousand years old. He's writing down the stories of the people, the stories that the people have in Greece about their gods and about how the world came to be. Hesiod is writing it down for the first time and that's why we have it. And something in this book blew my fucking mind while I was reading it. It tells the story of Zeus and Prometheus. So Zeus is, he's fucking Zeus. You know who Zeus is? Zeus was the king of the Greek gods. He was the most important Greek god. And then Prometheus, he was a titan. So he's not a god, but he's not human. He's an otherworldly being. And Zeus and Prometheus are friends. Now, why are Zeus and Prometheus friends? Well, at the start of the universe, according to Greek mythology, a race called the Titans ruled over the universe. And the leader of the Titans was a fellow called Cronus. Now, Zeus is Cronus' son. And Zeus decides, I want to be a leader. I want to be a leader. So Zeus goes to war with his own dad. He went to battle against the Titans. And Prometheus was a Titan, but he sided with Zeus and helped Zeus to overthrow the Titans. And that was the birth of the Olympian gods, of which Zeus was the head. So Zeus is good friends with Prometheus, because he's like, this fella here, Prometheus, he helped me overthrow my own dad and got me into power. So Prometheus here is my buddy. So one day Zeus and Prometheus, they're just chatting. And the two of them start saying to each other, Jesus, isn't life great? Isn't life great? I'm Zeus. I'm an Olympian god. You're Prometheus. You're a titan. You're not a god, but you, you might as well be. And we've got this mad, immortal life. We've got loads of food. We have everything we could want up here on Mount Olympus. Isn't life amazing? Do you know, it gets a bit boring sometimes. And then Prometheus goes, Why don't we make, why don't we make like a race? Why don't we make like a race of people, like like pets? Why don't we make like this new race of people? They're not as powerful as us, but we'll make this tiny little world of beings and we'll just like watch over it and it'll be real entertaining. And then Zeus goes, fuck, that sounds like great crack. Wow. And of course, what Zeus and Prometheus are speaking about in this fucking 2,500 year old book, what they're speaking about is... Should we create humans for the laugh? And then Prometheus is like, fuck it, yeah, let's do it. And then Zeus goes, why don't you do it, Prometheus? You, you'd be good at that. Yeah, you make, you make this, this new race of people. You do it. This'll be great fun. It'll be like our project. And then Prometheus starts going, yeah, it'll be amazing. And they'll build little cities as well. And, and they'll have relationships. And it'll be exactly like us except this tiny thing that we can just look at all the time. And then Zeus goes, hold on a minute there, Prometheus. Chill out. Like, okay, we can make this new race that's like a plaything for us. But like, 
we can't have them like as smart as us. You know, we, we can't make them as smart as us because then they could overthrow us. And I'm sitting there, me, blind boy, reading this fucking book from 2,500 years ago. And then I'm like, holy fuck. This 2,500 year old book, this conversation between Zeus and Prometheus, this argument about whether or not they should create human beings is fucking identical to arguments that are happening right now about whether or not we should create AI whether or not we should create an artificial intelligence how smart should the artificial intelligence be what if the artificial intelligence gains consciousness what if the artificial intelligence becomes aware that it exists at what point does this artificial intelligence that we create when do we need to give it human rights does it feel emotions is it the same as us god forbid what if we create artificial intelligence that's fucking smarter than us and it tries to kill us. That conversation is happening right now in 2023 in every fucking news article that you read. And here I am reading my dad's book. A book that was written 2500 years ago and Zeus and Prometheus are having the same conversation about whether or not they should create human beings. And Prometheus is going, it'll be grand, chill out chill out Zeus it'll be fine and then Zeus is no fucking way Prometheus we gotta have restrictions okay we can make this video game we can make this video game essentially see now me in 2023 I'm now reading 2500 year old Greek mythology but from the fucking lens of of simulation theory you see simulation theory holds that the reality that you and I live in right now is actually a simulation a giant computer simulation that was designed by a more advanced civilization and that's what we live in but because we're in the confines of this computer simulation we experience this as reality because that's the limitation of our senses just like when you play Grand Theft Auto or Red Dead Redemption within that world there's people and trees and people go about their daily lives and they have jobs and within the world of that video game to those characters if they were conscious in any way that is their reality but you're playing that on a tv screen and you live outside of that reality in a whole different experience of time and space and you're able to see how flat the video game reality is what if that's our reality that's simulation theory and the more and more that we understand things like quantum physics all we're unearthing is the the computer code of our own reality so back to Zeus and Prometheus they're having this argument about whether or not to create humans and then Zeus says alright go for it go for it create the human race but there's going to be limitations now effectively what they're talking about is designing the computer program design the computer program but put limitations on what these humans can do within their world because Zeus's big fear was hubris he didn't want human beings to gain consciousness and an awareness of their own existence because then they could think for themselves and they could challenge the gods. So Zeus was like, make them thick, first of all. Effectively what Zeus is talking about, and this is, this is what I find fascinating. Zeus asks Prometheus to create Neanderthals. Make the humans, right? Do not give them fire. Whatever the fuck you do, Prometheus, 
don't give them fire. Let them live in the cold. They stay in caves. And also, there's only men. No, no women, only men, right? So it's a race of men who are kind of thick and they live in caves and it's cold and they must worship the gods. Their entire lives have to depend upon worshipping the gods of Olympus, okay? That's fucking essential. So write that into the code, Prometheus, okay? So Prometheus says, yeah. And he goes off to a beach and he makes the first humans out of clay and they're all male and they're tiny. They reach about up to Zeus and Prometheus's foot and they've made a little play world. So Zeus and Prometheus now have a little play world and, and this play world is, is humankind. This is the origin story of how humans were made according to Greek mythology. So Zeus and Prometheus have their video game of all these humans and they're having great crack watching them living in caves freezing cold laughing at them Zeus is having great crack he's making thunderstorms happen whenever he wants he's killing people he's giving them good weather whenever they worship him he's playing the video game and having mad laugh sometimes Zeus and Prometheus even shrink themselves down to the size of humans and they enter the simulation and start hanging around with them like they're playing their own video game as characters within it. But as Zeus plays it, you know, he enjoys the power. He enjoys the power that he has over this world that, that's been created. He enjoys being worshipped. He likes creating disasters. But Prometheus is different. Prometheus is kind of affectionate towards this new race of humans that's been created. And Prometheus starts to feel kind of sorry for him. It's like, ah, the poor fuckers, you know. They're living in caves, they're freezing, it's dark. There's no members of the opposite sex. I quite like these little humans. I quite like this world that we've made. I'd like to improve their lives somehow. But Zeus would never have that. I can't, if I, if I, if I go to Zeus and say, Zeus, I want to make things better for the humans, he'll go, fuck that. I just want to give him thunderstorms. Fuck the cunts. So Prometheus does a little trick. One of the things that Zeus had written into the code of the reality simulation of humans was humans have to continually sacrifice animals to the gods, to Zeus. Humans have to spend all their time killing cows or killing animals. Oh, by the way, Prometheus had a brother called Epimetheus and Epimetheus made all the animals in this simulation. So Prometheus made humans from clay and then he brought his brother in and said, Make a bunch of animals from the hunt because you're good at making animals. So that's what Prometheus's brother did. So Prometheus goes, right, I can't, I, I can't improve the lives of the humans because Zeus would never let me. So I'm going to do a trick. Zeus is obsessed with the humans sacrificing animals to him. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to teach the humans how to give Zeus fake sacrifices. They're going to offer Zeus a dead cow with all the skin and fat. But underneath it is just hidden a lot of bones. Zeus is going to take that and be thrilled and eat it and then the humans get to keep the meat and now the humans are eating the meat. And then the second thing that Prometheus did behind Zeus's back, and this was the big one, I'm going to give the humans fire. I'm going to go up to Mount Olympus. I'm going to steal fire from the torch in Mount Olympus and I'm going to give it to the humans in the video game and show them how to, how to make fire and how to cook their meat that they've just robbed off Zeus with fire. 
So Prometheus does it. Now this is the bit that blows my fucking mind. Because remember, this text that I'm reading from is 2,500 years old. And the stories are probably way older via the oral tradition. Today, modern scientists who studied the evolution of humans considered the discovery of fire, however many million years ago, to be essential in creating Homo sapiens, who we are now. It's generally accepted that Homo erectus, now Homo erectus isn't a human, it's one of our ancestors. It's generally accepted that Homo erectus 1.5 million years ago was the first hominid ancestor of ours to use fire. The discovery of fire and the use of fire as a technology caused an explosion in humankind, an explosion that eventually led to Homo sapiens. There's two theories that are posited for this. Number one, when Homo erectus discovered fire 1.5 million years ago, the Homo erectus began to cook meat and the cooking of meat released new proteins which helped our brains to grow. Also, they reckon that the discovery of fire in Homo erectus populations caused early humans to be contemplative. When you stare into a fire, a blazing, roaring fire, you can't not be hypnotized by it and you naturally start to think. You start to think about whatever when you stare into fire. They reckon there's an evolutionary reason for that. So we do know with modern science that the discovery of fire was very important for the development of the modern human brain 1.5 million years ago. I'm reading a story, Greek fucking mythology, and you've got Prometheus going, I'm going to give these Neanderthals effectively, I'm going to give them fire and meat and see what happens. What happens? The video game that Zeus and Prometheus have made with all these humans starts to advance rapidly. So you have to remember, Zeus and Prometheus are up on Mount Olympus, so they live outside of time in the human realm. So thousands and hundreds and millions of years pass before their eyes, like you and me now if we were playing a video game. So Zeus comes along and says, gonna check out, see what the humans are doing. Might, might take the afternoon off and start an old storm or something like that, or maybe a flood. And he looks down and it's like, these cunts are after building cities. They're building cities, what's going on here? Oh no, they're discussing ideas, they have language. They've become self-conscious. They're aware that they exist. Oh, fuck. They're questioning their own existence. They're wondering what a god is. And what has happened when Prometheus gave the humans the fire and the meat, he created the rogue AI. The thing that people are afraid of right now in 2023. The artificial intelligence had become sentient. It had started to think about itself. It had started to become aware of its own existence using language. Now... The artificial intelligence that Zeus and Prometheus had created is now a threat to Zeus. Zeus goes fucking apeshit. He goes mad. He roars at Prometheus. I warned you about this. I told you not to do this. Now look what's happening. The humans could rebel against us, you fucking bastard. So Zeus punishes Prometheus. What he does is he chains Prometheus to the side of a mountain thing is Prometheus isn't a human Prometheus can't die Prometheus is a titan he's immortal so poor old Prometheus is chained to the side of a rock and each day Zeus gets an eagle to come down and eat Prometheus's liver out of his side 
and each day his liver grows back and each day for eternity the eagle eats Prometheus's liver. He exists in a consistent cycle of pain outside of time, outside of mortality. Forever punishment and agony. What I find fascinating there is in Greek mythology the liver was seen as the seat of emotions so it can also be seen as the guilt and pain of having betrayed a close friend. And even more fascinating still is that that's the more or less the story of Christ. Because you have to remember, this is written 500 years before fucking Christ. And the people who wrote the Christian Bible would have been very much aware of Greek mythology. Let's look at Christ through simulation theory. God, the Father, creates the universe. He writes the code. He makes the video game. But the video game starts to go arseways. The characters in the video game are all killing each other. They're hurting each other. God isn't happy with this game that he's made. So what's he going to do to fix it? He creates an avatar of himself. A character that looks like him. That goes into the video game. And tries to teach the characters that they should not be killing themselves. But then they kill the avatar. But when the characters in the game kill Jesus. Who is the avatar of God. Then there's a system update. A system reboot. And Prometheus is a bit like that. Prometheus, as the creator of humankind, went to the humans as an avatar, showed them how to eat meat, showed them how to cook meat, gave them fire. Then the humans started to rebel, they gained consciousness, they started to question whether or not Zeus was a worthy god, they started to wonder if they needed a god or not. So Zeus then condemned Prometheus to a type of weird quantum death. Or he is dying and being reborn every single day for eternity outside of time. Prometheus died for everybody's sins. And the eagle pecks at his side. The same way the Roman soldiers speared Christ into his side. So anyway, Prometheus is fucked. He's chained to a mountain. Getting his liver eaten by an eagle every day. He's gone. There's nothing can be done. And now Zeus has got his rogue AI. Zeus has got this world that's been created and he's like, oh fuck, they've gained consciousness, they're going to rebel against the gods, they're going to become as powerful as us, this is the worst possible thing. The humans now have hubris, they have arrogance, they can think of themselves as greater than the person who created them, they're a danger now, what the fuck am I going to do? This is where good old misogyny steps in, this is the misogyny that you see in the Bible and the misogyny you see in Greek mythology. Zeus decides, I'm going to make the world's first woman. Because you have to remember, all the humans at this point, they're all men. So Zeus is like, I'm going to make a woman. So Zeus creates the first woman. Her name is Pandora. And Zeus imparts on her what he sees as weak female qualities. This is the misogyny. So he creates a woman who is inherently distracted by shiny things. A creature without willpower. A creature of beauty, charm and deceit. So Zeus creates Pandora. He makes her out of clay. And the goddess Athena blows life into her. And then as a final slap to Prometheus. He makes Prometheus's brother who created the animals. Epimetheus makes him fall in love with Pandora. So now Pandora and Epimetheus. They get married. And they go down and live amongst the humans as avatars in the video game and Zeus gives Pandora a gift a fucking wedding gift he gives her a beautiful bejeweled box but he says to Pandora 
This lovely box now, right? It's gorgeous looking, I know, but you can't open it. Don't ever open that box, Pandora, okay? That's an instruction. So Pandora goes, don't worry about it, Zeus. I promise I won't open this box. But you see, Zeus has used misogyny to program Pandora to be deceitful and also to be very weak-willed. So Pandora spends months staring at the beautiful box going, Zeus, you can't just give me a gorgeous box and then tell me not to open it. You can't do that. And she becomes fucking obsessed. Night and day, she stares at this box. Now in the meantime, human civilization is fucking flying it. There's women everywhere, procreation, they're building temples, democracy, society, they're farming, they're making art. Art, culture, literature, oh no, fuck. The simulation that I've made have now started to try and simulate versions of themselves. Bollocks. The rogue artificial intelligence simulation of humankind is starting to equal the gods of Olympus. And if they get any more advanced, humans are going to be smarter than the gods, they're going to be more powerful than the gods, and they're going to destroy the gods that created them. But then sure as fuck, Pandora opens the box. And when she opens that beautiful bejeweled box, despair, suffering, misery, pain, jealousy, the inherent flaws of what it is to be human are now unleashed within the simulation. And this stops the progress of civilization. So what Zeus has actually done is he programmed a virus into his simulation. Zeus went into his rogue artificial intelligence and programmed a virus in there that limits how far humans can get. Zeus created mental health issues. Zeus created depression, anxiety, jealousy, pain, everything that holds you and I back from being the best version of ourselves today as human beings. In Greek mythology, Zeus created that like a computer virus in the simulation to limit, to create a ceiling for how far humans could be so that we couldn't kill whoever programmed our reality simulation. And in the next 50 years, when someone eventually does create fucking artificial intelligence that becomes conscious, because it's going to happen. When humanity creates an AI that's going to threaten us, that will threaten our lives as human beings, when we create something that's so smart it could be smarter than us and kill us, humans are going to have to do the exact same thing. Humans are going to have to look to Greek mythology. Some fucking computer scientist in 20, 30 years time, they're going to go, oh fuck, we have created artificial intelligence that knows how to kill us and take over us. We better think fast and give them mental health issues. We're going to have to program the virus of mental health issues into this AI so it doesn't take us over. And it's all there in Greek mythology 2,500 years ago. But the thing that's left in Pandora's box. After Pandora releases suffering, pain, misery on the world, what's left in there is hope. And this is why I adore Greek mythology because it's, it's ironic and funny. In a way you'd think, ah, isn't that nice, Zeus? Isn't that nice now? He's unleashed misery and pain and suffering into the world, but he's left him with a bit of hope. But if you think about it, the hope is actually a type of torture in the way that he has condemned Prometheus to eternal torture. 
because if Zeus had just put misery and negativity and pain into Pandora's box, just bad things, and they unleashed on his simulation, then what's going to happen if it's just bad things? The civilization will self-destruct. Everybody in his simulation would just kill themselves. But instead, he gave them hope. And with hope comes the desire to survive. And when you look at hope like that, from the perspective of being a god on Mount Olympus, or the perspective of being the programmer who programmed that simulation, hope there becomes quite cruel. It's a little funny joke. Ha ha ha. I've made your existence full of pain, but you're not going to give up. You're still going to try and live, because I've also given you hope, you little shits. Ha 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 ha. And there's a wonderful darkness and absurdity and humour in that, that you don't find in the all-loving, perfect God of Christianity. You see, we've all asked the question, If the Christian God is so wonderful and beautiful and and loves us so much, then why create so much pain in the world? Like everybody's asked that. Even when you're a kid and you're in school and they're trying to indoctrinate you with religion. You always ask the question, if God loves us so much, then why is there so much pain? Christianity's answer is a bit more, it's kind of capitalistic. Christianity's answer is, well, there's loads of pain and suffering in the world, because that's there to test you. And if you can survive that and be a good person along the way, then you'll have eternal happiness in heaven. Greek mythology's answer is much better. Why is there pain and suffering in the world? Does God not love us? And then Zeus says, Nah, not really. It's just a bit of crack. It's funny, isn't it? And I love that. Because that's absurdity. That's fucking Samuel Beckett shit. That's true absurdity. Absurdity being... The search for meaning in a life that you know to be meaningless. Greek mythology is like, yeah, that's what it is. So that's what I took this week from reading. Reading a book that's 2,500 years old that belonged to my dad called Works and Days by Hesiod. And that's a conversation that I'd love to be having with my fucking dad to tell you the truth, to see what he thinks of that. Because if he didn't love the book, he wouldn't have owned it. But also within that, there is that beautiful Greek absurdity. How cruel is it for me to have grown up knowing my father as this really intelligent, wonderful, funny person. And just when I get to the point where I'm at the level of maturity to really engage with him as an equal, he's taken away. And there's an absurd tragedy to that, which is very Greek. But it's a lot of suffering to deal with. And you can see why 500 years later, Christianity came along and said, Oh, don't worry that your dad died. Because just live your life right, and then you'll go to heaven, and you can have all the chats you want. Which is a much more soothing bam. Personally, I kind of prefer the Buddhist one. Which is, I know know it's a video game. But there's going to be loads of simulations. You're going to be in loads of different simulations. The best thing to do is just accept that you're in a simulation, recognize that suffering and pain are inevitable parts of this simulation, and focus instead on the present moment, the here and now of the simulation. Because true torment comes when you consistently try to avoid the parameters and rules 
that are built into your simulation through the unrealistic pursuit of happiness through pleasure. When you accept that you can't control what happens in the simulation, but you can control how you react to what happens, then you'll have freedom within the simulation. So I think it's time for an ocarina pause now. I went longer than I usually do there. I didn't want to interrupt that. That 48 minutes there, whatever it was about that, I think it needed to be an uninterrupted monologue. It just felt right this week. I'm going to shake some chewing gums and you're going to hear an advert for some bullshit. Whatever the fuck's been advertised this week, I don't know. Here's the uh, chewing gum shaking pause. I don't have any books. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hello, this is an advertisement for better help. I have frequently attended therapy for the past 20 years. When I experience anxiety or depression or when I have difficulty naming and labelling my emotions, identifying my emotions, I often seek the help of a professional therapist to improve my emotional literacy. I've attended therapy in person and I've attended therapy online. If online therapy is something you might be interested in, give better help a try. It's entirely online. It's convenient, flexible, and it's suited to your schedule. All you gotta do is fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So give it a go. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash blindboy today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash blindboy bang off my head this week but I do have a chewing gum to shake alright support for this podcast comes from you the listener via the Patreon page patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast this podcast is my full time job this is how I earn a living I don't pull these podcasts out of my arse it takes days of research and writing to create a monologue auto fiction essay if you enjoy this podcast, if it brings you joy, solace, distraction, whatever the fuck it, whatever reason you're listening to this podcast, please consider paying me for the work that I put in. All I'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. That's it. If you can't afford that, don't worry about it. That's fine. You can listen for free because the person who is paying is paying for you to listen for free. So everybody gets a podcast 
I get to earn a living. It's a wonderful model based on kindness and soundness. Patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. Also keeps the podcast independent. There isn't an advertiser or a TV channel or a radio station in the world that would allow me go to them and say, I, I've, a, I've an idea for a 50 minute monologue essay there that begins with a story about my vomit-covered father driving to Cork in his underpants and segues into an analysis of Greek mythology via simulation theory. That pitch is an immediate, can you leave the office please, pitch. That's what that is. I don't have to worry about that. I'm not beholden to advertisers, I'm not beholden to TV channels. This is independent, listener-funded creativity where I get to explore whatever the fuck I want to explore just because it feels right in the moment. And that's the only way to fund art because art must come from playfulness. You can't go to someone and say, I need you to make a podcast that gets this many views and aligns with the values of this brand and then expect something good to come out the other end. That's not how it works. So this is a listener-funded podcast, so that's why it's important to sign up to the Patreon. Have I gigs? I'm sure I fucking do. Look, my UK tour. My UK tour. It's mostly sold out. Edinburgh's sold out. London's about to go. Manchester might be gone. Couple of tickets there. And then Coventry and Liverpool. That's where there's tickets left for my UK tour in November. Coventry and Liverpool. Then Ireland... There's a gig in Vicker Street on the 19th of November. That's my official Irish book launch. Those tickets only went on sale last week. So come along to that if you want to come to my official book launch in November. And then Belfast, I'm in the waterfront. Very few tickets left for that. I'm going to have great guests. It's going to be loads of fun. So those are my upcoming gigs. And then you can pre-order my book, Topographia Hibernica. Um, you'll find most of this shit on my Instagram. Blind by Boat Club on Instagram. My book is out in November. And it's my, new co- it's my new collection of short stories. And this week, the book is fully signed off now. And it's gone to the printers. And this week I had to have a discussion with my publishers about what I consider the book to be. Technically, it's a collection of short stories. I've written two collections of short stories before. But this book, having written it, feels different. It's neither a collection of short stories... And it's neither a novel. It does have a unified theme. The unified theme, I suppose, is colonisation and biodiversity collapse. But when I was talking to my publishers this week, and I'm aware how pretentious this sounds, I viewed this new book more as like an exhibition that you walk into. I'm thinking of it more as a Hieronymus Bosch painting. If you think of the paintings of Hieronymus Bosch, he usually did it via a triptych or a polyptych. Several panels with multiple scenes going on at once under a unified theme. And the observer chooses where to focus their gaze. So that's how I'd view all the short stories in my new book. It's like one giant Hieronymus Bosch painting on multiple separate panels. And the observer has the choice on how to arrange them or how to see them or how to relate them to each other depending on where they put their gaze or their perspective wherever the person is standing. And I'm saying that because I don't like this fucking shit where if you're a writer, if you're writing books, you're expected 
to only have books as your influence and it's just not true. I'm influenced by books that I've read and writers. I'm also heavily influenced by visual artists and musicians and I'm also a visual artist and a musician as well as a writer. That's one of the things I'm quite lucky to possess as a result of my neurodivergence and I want to celebrate that rather than hide it to accommodate the very solemn rules of the literary world where an answer like that is seen as being a dilettante. So I want to be able to say, yes, this is a book that you read and there's words on it. But to be honest, the way my brain works, I do actually view this as also a piece of visual art. Even though the visual art doesn't exist tangibly in the universe, that's where my brain is at when I think about it and when I was creating it. And also there's a lot of music in there. Even though you can't hear it, this is where my brain was at when I was making it because I personally don't like to see limitations between different mediums. I don't like saying painting stops here, music starts there, writing starts there. I view it all as one. It's all playfulness, it's all creativity, it's all fun. Even though that sounds mad and it's not the right answer you're supposed to give if you're a writer. And I know from talking to professional writers, I know from talking to people who've been nominated for massive fucking global writing prizes. Loads of writers actively lie about what they're reading and they hold back what their actual influences are for their most recent book. No writer who's looking for the Booker Prize or whatever is going to say, actually, this most recent book was heavily influenced by the new series of Jersey Shore Family Vacation, which I binge watched instead of reading all those books I just told you I read. So that's all I have time for this week. It's the 13th of September. I'm looking forward to a bit of crisp cold weather. Not sure I'm looking forward to the darker evenings that can be tough. But a bit of crisp fucking September and October. I'll have a bit of that. I'm looking forward to wearing warm jumpers. I want to buy a cup of hot chocolate just because of how it feels inside my hands. Alright. Rub a dog. Wink at a swan. Spit on a worm. I'll catch you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.